do is first I want to uh, read to you an introduction which I have, that I have over here, and then we'll see some psukim which, are, which come from the Megillah, which will elaborate or will really explain what, the, what I mean. Okay, so this is a thinking thing. This is not something that you necessarily have to write down. Um, so we say, there are two types of people. Those who are real and those who are generic. Generic people are those who strive to live up to society's ideals. In our society, people are expected to be beautiful, intelligent, wealthy, athletic, well-dressed, part of a beautiful family, etc. This person is the model person, and we all strive to become that person. We strive to be perfect in all of those ways, and any time we fall short of that ideal, we feel like a failure. The yearning to be generic is so strong that it influences almost every decision that we make. How we dress, how we do our hair, when we need a new wardrobe, what car we drive, what job to pursue in the future, where we send our kids to school, etc. It also influences how we think about things, or at least which thoughts we are willing to share with others. We are very cautious not to express thoughts and opinions that will allow others to see that we are not generic. In the extreme case, all of a person's decisions are dictated by the elusive goal of becoming the model generic person. Truthfully, there is not one person who possesses every trait that society deems as ideal. But that fact does not stop us from convincing ourselves that we must pursue that goal of all, at all costs. When a person is faced with the fact that he is not generic, she can feel a sense of shame. Shame is one of the strongest emotions, and avoiding shame triggers a fight-or-flight reaction that we endeavor to avoid at almost all costs. The shame that is associated with being different can force a person to do things that she does not want to do, participate in activities that she despises, or behave in ways that are not consistent with who she really is. All of this is done to achieve the status of the generic person. Now, someone who is real does not live as the generic person. People who are real understand that no one could actually be the mythical generic person. In fact, if we were all the generic person, we would all be the same. We would look the same, act the same, think the same. There would be nothing to distinguish you from anyone else. Real people are self-aware. They're aware of their strengths, but also their weaknesses. They know their flaws, weaknesses, challenges, and difficulties. Not only are they aware of them, but they embrace them. They understand that who they really are is what makes them unique and special. Their unique combination of interests and skills, skill sets, together with their flaws and weaknesses, is what defines them as an individual. It's not simply that they tolerate these aspects of who they are. That is precisely the reason they can love themselves. Self-empathy is a term that is used. They love themselves because they can tolerate and embrace who they are. Remember that term, embrace it? for a little bit. Real people have the capacity to have tolerance towards others. Generic people cannot. Flaws and weaknesses are to be shunned and avoided, lest one becomes associated with them and bear the shame that accompanies those weaknesses. Okay? So these are the two types of people, generally, two types of people which exist. Those who are always thinking about what others think are always concerned or consumed with what others are going to think about them. And as a result of that, as we said, it dictates how you dress, how you speak, what opinions you have, all of those types of things. And then there are those people who 
make decisions because this is the right thing to do, and they're not worried about what other people are going to say, what other people are going to think. It's not doesn't register by them. It's not important to them because they are true and loyal to themselves, and they're going to behave in the way which is consistent with those values and those things which which they hold dear. So those are two categories of people which uh, which exist. Most of us find ourselves somewhere in the middle over there, but there are uh, these are uh, attitudes which we have. So in the Megillah, there are primarily four characters which we follow. Achashverosh, Haman, Esther, and Mordechai. So as I'm going to show you now from various psukim, Achashverosh and Haman are completely generic. They're always worried about what other people are going to think. Mordechai is a person who is real. He is not concerned at all what other people are thinking. And he's going to do what's right despite what other people are thinking. In Esther, she's going to have this great transition over the course of the Megillah where she goes in some ways from being concerned, not being true to herself, and then eventually becoming a person who is very real. Okay, so those are the people. We have uh, Ahasuerus and Haman on one side, we have Mordechai and Esther on the other side, and now we will see uh, exactly how this, uh, how this play, plays itself out over the course of the, uh, the, course of the Megillah. So we'll start with Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus was afraid of his own shadow. Now, he was a very powerful individual, but he was afraid of his own shadow for one simple reason. And that is, if he was not born into royalty. He married royalty. So Vashti was the daughter, she was the princess of the previous king of Belshazzar. Ahasuerus marries royalty, and as a result of that, he, in a sense, becomes king, but he's always afraid that he's going to be exposed as a fraud. That people will realize that he's not really a worthy king, he's not really a powerful king, he's not really a leader of the nation, and therefore everything which happens in the Megillah is with that background and with that fear that somebody will realize I'm not worthy of being the king. So he spends the whole time being consumed and cons- thinking about that, and you see, like at the very beginning, when he's having these parties to show everybody how wealthy he is, to show off that he's the king, so that people should associate him with that position of being the king, he does the last on ish vaish. He prepares food and drink for everybody exactly as they want. He didn't have a fixed menu which everybody was going to share, and if you like it, good, and if you don't like it, too bad. He went ahead and made sure that everybody would walk out having eaten their favorite food and having consumed their favorite beverages. So this is, what he was, this is how far he's going to go to make sure that everybody likes him and respects him as the king. And, and this second source over here, as the people, once they get good and drunk, so they're talking about who the most beautiful women in the, in the kingdom are, everybody was bragging that their women are the most beautiful. And Chazal tells us that Ahasuerus says to them, you know what? My wife, Vashi, she's the most beautiful in the whole kingdom. Would you like to see? Now that's a disgusting thing for a husband to say, that I have a beautiful wife, and I would like to go ahead and show her off to all of you. Would you all like to see? But they said yes. And not only did they say yes, the Pasuk says, is the royal crown. Chazal understand this to mean that she should show up not uh, dressed and together with her clothing, she should be wearing a crown. Chazal understood this to mean that she'd be wearing only her crown. So they asked that she shows up just with a crown on her head and nothing else. 
Right. Disgusting. And Achashverosh goes along with it. And he says, yeah, let's bring her in, and that's what she's going to be wearing, because he wanted to impress everybody else in terms of his status as the king. As the king, it's expected that he's going to have the most beautiful wife, and as a result of that, he goes along with the flow. He, goes, he, he, he succumbs to that peer pressure and violates the very basic relationship between husband and wife to have her exposed to everybody else. And not much could be more humiliating than that. So I don't understand when she said no, she got killed, but she did the right thing by saying no. Hold, hold on. So she, so she says no. So why does she say no? When she said no, so the Gemara tells us a fascinating thing. That when, now, knowing that Ahasuerus was worried about the fact that he wasn't born into royalty. So what's the one thing that, that Vashti could say to Ahasuerus, which will get him angrier than anything else? No. Not just no. What she says is, you, Ahasuerus, who are now the king, in my father's kingdom, my father was the king, you wouldn't have even been worthy to be the stable boy. You wouldn't have even been worthy to take care of our horses. That's how low you are as far as Malchus is concerned, as far as royalty is concerned. You are a nothing. When Ahasuerus hears that his wife, who is royalty, says to him, you are nothing, nothing gets him angrier than that. But she did the right thing by saying no. She did. Yeah, we're not not talking about her personality. So why is she in cultural? Because he's a yutz. He didn't make a halachi decision. He, he responded in anger. But that, that's not right that she should die yeah, because she said how many women have died from saying no. So, you're, you're right. We're not justifying her death. That's not what our point over here. The point is, is that she said to him the one thing that, that would make him the angriest of all. She which, said that to him? That's what the Mara says. She said, you're not even worth, you wouldn't have even been worthy to be the stable boy in my father's, in my father's palace. So that means that you're all the way down. You are nothing as far as royalty is concerned. Not even to be worked for royalty. You're not even that. So at this point, the Hamas he's furious and he's angry. So what does he do? He consults his wise men. Because again, he's afraid of his shadow. He's afraid to make a decision on his own. Because if he has her killed and somebody gets upset, then they're going to point the finger at him and they're going to blame him. And then once again, say, oh, a real king wouldn't have done such a thing. So rather than make a decision on his own, he goes to his, his, his advisors and says, what should I do? And what do they advise? Kill her. So he has it done. Because once it's their decision rather than his own, he can't be blamed for that, and therefore he is good to go. Now, how does Haman go ahead and convince Ahasuerus to, to, uh, to kill her? So Haman also knows Ahasuerus' weak point. Ahasuerus' weak point is that people will look at you and think that you're unworthy. So what Haman says is, that what's going to happen now is, if you don't respond forcefully, that all of the wives of the kingdom are going to stop listening to their husbands. Because they're going to say, because Ahasuerus instructed his wife Vashti to appear before him, and she refused to come. Now all of the women are going to do the same thing if you don't respond forcefully. And then what's going to happen is that when everybody hears about that you told her to come and she said absolutely not, and you are going to be humiliated by that. 
As soon as Haman says to Ahasuerus, you're going to be humiliated by that, once again, hit that hot button inside of Ahasuerus, that everybody will realize, everybody's going to be upset, that their wives aren't listening to them anymore, and they're all going to point the finger at you, and it's all going to be your fault, Ahasuerus. What are you going to do about it now? Ahasuerus can't tolerate that. People are going to be upset at me, they're going to point at me, they're going to think I'm not worthy of being the king, so he has her killed. Because he can't stand, you know, he can't stand the notion that being exposed as being unworthy of being the king. And this becomes, this is his behavior throughout the Megillah. He's always consulting, always looking for other people to tell him what to do, so that he cannot get blamed for his decisions, so that he should be able to remain in that position as, a, as, a, as, the, as the mouth. Yeah? Um, who wrote all of this down? Uh, Esther and Mordechai. But they weren't here when this was happening. They were where? Oh, yeah, yeah. They, they, we'll see a thing about that later. Yeah, the Gemara discussed that, how exactly they know what uh, all of this stuff is going on. I mean, here they could have, because uh, 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 Mordechai was also one of the advisors. Oh. But also, didn't they, didn't they, did he get Rosh Hashanah and Solomon? Yes, that's one of the, the, the proofs that they have. Yes. Okay, so now. So Esther, she's forced into this position where she's not, Mordechai tells her, you're not allowed to tell anybody that you're Jewish. And Esther listens. Through much of the Megillah, she listens, and she doesn't tell anybody that she's Jewish. And everybody associates with her. Everybody looks at Esther and thinks that she's from one of them, that she is from their country, that she's a, uh, uh, she's a local, she looks like us. And there was this, this charm about her, but she couldn't be completely real because Mordechai said you may not tell anybody who you are. So you have to hide, the, you have to hide who you are. Now, just to set ourselves up a, a little bit, um, uh, Esther undoubtedly went to the finest Beisiakos, finest nursery school, finest uh, kindergarten, K through eight, uh, high school, seminary, and she ends up married to, uh, to an Ahasuerush. So as a good Beisiakov girl, what does she say when she gets chosen to be Ahasuerush's wife? No. She has a choice. She says... All is going to be for the best. Because Baruch is going to take care of me. Inevitably, she's going to say something along those lines. And, but, inside, how's she feeling? Nervous. Terrible. Right? I was not supposed to be, the, as a good base Yaakov girl, as a good Hannah Sachs girl, I'm not supposed to end up married to Achashverosh. That wasn't part of the plan. That was never part of the plan. That there can, nothing good could possibly come from my being married to him. I was supposed to marry somebody who's a Tamil Chacham. I was going to marry somebody who's going to be a big veer in town, who's going to donate lots of money. And instead, she ends up married to this disgusting human being who happens to be the king of Achashverosh. So keep that in your mind, that she, and she's got to hide who she is. She's not allowed to share who she is. Over here... Uh, do you ever wonder about why Ahasuerus had a hard time choosing a, a wife the second time around? He had his choice of anybody. So if he had his choice of anybody, so why, why, did, why was it so difficult? Just choose. Because he wanted Esther. He didn't know that he wanted Esther. So the reason is, and this is what we have over here, is that, that all of the women went through the same makeup and the same hairstylist. So as they all passed before Ahasuerus, they all looked exactly the same. So if you have to choose between 10,000 things which look exactly the same, how do you choose? The one that, the the one that stands out. The one that's different, right? And Esther was different because she didn't, that's what it says over here, she didn't go ahead and do the same as everybody else. 
the one year worth of makeup and hair stuff, which everybody else went. So since she was somewhat different, that's why there was something special about her, and that's why she ends up being chosen as the, as the queen. Now, that is as far as uh, Ahasuerus. Now, Haman, So 99.9% of the population is bowing down to Haman, because that's what the king said. And Mordechai refuses. So what do we see about Mordechai? He's, he's not a follower. He's going to do what he knows to be the correct thing to do. The fact that everybody else is doing differently does not make a difference to Mordechai at all. He's going to do what's right because he knows what's right and he's not going to succumb to peer pressure because he's real to himself. He's honest with who he is and he says, I can't do that. Haman sees that Mordechai refuses to bow down to him. What's Haman's reaction? What would most of us say? Okay, 99.9% of the population is bowing down to me. There's one Yatz who won't bow down to me. He said, Meshuggah, what do I care about one, one crazy old man who refuses to bow down to me? He's a nothing, and I'm just going to ignore him. But instead, Haman gets filled with rage. Why is he filled with rage? Because his whole definition of himself is what others think. And therefore, if there's somebody who doesn't believe in him, somebody who doesn't hold him in high regard, then everything else, as he says later on, everything else is meaningless. Everything else is worthless. And his whole definition of self then falls apart. The whole, the whole house of cards crumbles down because this one person will bow down to him. And that's why he gets furious, because that is his only definition of himself, is the ego that other people go ahead and feed to him. And once that's not there 100%, so he doesn't know what to do with himself. So he goes ahead and he offers to pay, uh, to pay money. Um, uh, okay, now, just for skipping a little bit, but he says that when Mordechai comes in, uh, 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 Haman issues the decree that the Jews are going to be killed, Mordechai sends the message to, uh, to, uh, to Esther. Listen, you've got to go into Hashverosh, you've got to speak to him, and you've got to make sure that the Jewish people are going to be saved. So what does she say? She's, she says, says, listen, everybody in the country knows, so she's invoking everybody, she's not talking from herself, she's saying, everybody knows, that anybody who goes into the king unannounced, they will die. The law is that they're going to die. Unless the king goes ahead and stretches out his golden scepter, which nobody has control whether he will or he will not. But if I go in there unannounced, I will be killed. And it's likely that I will be in that killed category because because I haven't even been called in the past 30 days. I haven't seen him for a long time, and therefore for me to show up unannounced, I'm going to get killed, and everybody knows that this is going to be the, the result, and I can't do it. What does Mordechai say to her? You have to do it. You got to do it anyways. It's not your job to worry about what the consequence is going to be, what the result is going to be. Your job is to do it. Because if you're going to be quiet at this point, you're not going to do anything. The Jews will inevitably be saved some way, somehow. And the only negative consequence is, you and your father's household will be lost in history. Nobody will remember who you are. And here comes the key line. 
And who is to say that it isn't for this moment that you became the queen? In other words, as we talked about in the introduction, there are things which everybody has, weaknesses and shortcomings and failings and whatever that we try and hide and we try and cover and sweep under the rug and pretend that they don't exist. But the truth is, is that if we're going to be real to ourselves, not only do we have to be tolerant of those things about ourselves, we have to learn to embrace them. We have to say that this is what makes me special. Not I'm special in spite of, I'm special because of. So Mordechai says to her, listen, you're the queen to this disgusting human being called Achashverosh, and nobody knows why this happened to you, but maybe if you embrace it now, and you realize God put me here so that I can save the Jewish people at this moment, this is going to be your greatness. This now is the key to why it is that your unusual circumstance is what's going to define you for all of history, define you for all of the future, is because you are mouthless at this moment. And what happens? She goes. Esther says, you're right. I'm not going to hide anymore who I am. I'm not going to be embarrassed about my circumstance, the fact that I was taken to be the queen to this disgusting person. I'm going to embrace my circumstance, and I'm going to become fully real. Once she does that, what happens? In source 14 it says, she now, up until this point, Mordechai always told Esther what to do. From this point on, Esther's now running the show. She says, okay, I got you. I'm now real. I'm now going to be loyal to myself and I'm going to embrace this difficult circumstance. Now you listen to me. Go ahead and gather everybody together. Fast for three days because I need to go into Achashosh. I need as many schosim as I could possibly have. What she did is amazing because the three days of fasting covered the Pesach Seder. They didn't have a Pesach Seder that year because Esther was the one who said, we need to fast for three days right now. And they skipped the Pesach Seder. She was able to do that because she was now real. And, as it says, I love Esther. Mordechai goes out and he says, yes, you're now calling the shots. I'm going to listen to you because you're in charge. So this moment where she says, yes, I am the queen and I'm going to embrace it rather than being embarrassed by it, she now becomes fully real, and she's now capable of going into Achashverosh. And it says, So when she went in and she put on the royal garments, she put on her queen's garments, what she was essentially doing was she wasn't dressing like the queen anymore, which is what she had been doing up until now. She now said, I am the queen. And she embraced it. And once she was prepared to embrace it, then she goes in, and because she was now real, Achashverus sees her and immediately is drawn to her, is immediately attracted to her because she's such a real person. You meet a real person, there's something about them that you just want to be friends with them. You want to connect with them, you want to talk with them, you want to be around them. And as soon as she comes in with that presence of being real, Achashverus is immediately captured by, by all of that. And he takes away and says, yeah, come in, please. Whatever you want, I'll give you, uh, you know, half, of, half of my kingdom. Um, uh, Haman, again, gets furious when Mordechai is not bowing down to him. And um, just give you one more thing over here. Over here, what she says, in order to convince Achashverus to save the Jewish people, what Esther has to say to him is, 
there, Ki ein hatsar that this enemy who's trying to kill me and my people has no regard for your kingdom whatsoever. He's willing to do things which are detrimental to your reign as king, and that's how bad he is. Once again, she knew how to manipulate Ahasuerus as well because he's so worried about his kingdom and his status as the king in order to convince him to allow the Jews to defend themselves. She says, this is going to be terrible for the kingdom. And then once he hears that it's bad for him, he says, yes, do what you need to do. And he goes ahead and he hangs them. Uh, ultimately, Harvona is the one who advises Ahasuerus to kill uh, Haman rather than Ahasuerus doing it on his own. When they say, could you take away the original decree? Ahasuerus says, nope, I can't, because that would look bad, but I can't issue another decree. So rather than getting rid of the first decree to kill the Jews, he says, no, we're going to go ahead and we'll put out a new one that allows you to go ahead and defend yourselves. And they go ahead and uh, Esther ultimately advises that, yes, we're going to go ahead and do so, and we're going to, uh, we're going to, uh, to defend uh, ourselves, and that's where the salvation comes from. But as you listen to the story again, uh, to listen to Megillah read tonight and tomorrow, so pay attention to what's going on in terms of the characters, and that becomes the inspiration for all of us to also make this change, this shift from being generic, where decisions that we make about what we do and what we say and how we dress and all of those things, rather than being dictated by what we're afraid others will say, or in order to meet other people's expectations, we have to learn to be embraced who we are with all of the different uh, idiosyncrasies and all different things about us, which sometimes we're a little uh, embarrassed of, and realize that, realize that that's what makes us special and unique, and it's going to be those things where we're going to become real and we'll be able to fulfill all of our, our, our potential. And that's really what Purim is about. It should be a freilichen Purim, it should be an inspiring Purim, it should come out a much more real person than, uh, than, uh, than as you went in.